All right, good morning, everyone. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. <clears throat> Excuse me, today we are in continuing with our Women in Leadership series. Today we have with us Dr. Margaret Hamilton. She is the CEO of Lane Community College. I'm going to read her bio as it's been provided. And I'd like to say that in, in these Women in Leadership series, the way this information is provided is exactly what I'm looking for. We're here to help the women leaders in our community tell their stories with their experiences and with their words. When I read her bio many times, I'm here in my office alone, and I wanted to jump up and start applauding. So be patient with me, with me as I read this, and I believe that you will be as excited and fortunate to know that we have someone like Margaret, Dr. Hamilton, here in our community with us, locking arms with, the, with all community leaders, helping us build a better place. So I'm gonna begin with reading her bio. Um, she, she's a registered nurse and she has her PhD. Let me begin with that. Dr. Margaret Hamilton currently serves as president and CEO for Lane Community College in Eugene, Oregon. Each year, Lane Community College serves over 20,000 credit and non-credit students pursuing career and transfer education at five locations within Lane County. Dr. Hamilton earned her PhD from Widener? Yep, Widener. Widener University in Pennsylvania, a Master of Science in Nursing from the University of Delaware, and a Bachelorette in Nursing from State University of New York at Plattsburgh. Dr. Hamilton practiced nursing in Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey before embarking on a 30-year career in higher education that including, teach including teaching at Our Lady of Lords School of Nursing, Rowan College of South Jersey, and Rutgers University, followed by a deanship and vice presidency at Camden County College in New Jersey, where she established herself as a statewide leader in strategic planning, institutional effectiveness, program development, and community partnerships. Dr. Hamilton served in several executive leadership positions in academic affairs, institutional effectiveness and planning, labor relations, and administrative services where she established statewide recognition for building collaborative partnerships with K-12 colleges and universities and business and industry. Prior to coming to Oregon, Dr. Hamilton collaborated with Cooper University Hospital to build a satellite care facility on the community college campus, bringing hospital-managed affordable healthcare to students, employees, and local residents. She also collaborated a notable partnership with Rutgers University to bring their four-year nursing baccalaureate program to the community college campus, the first partnership of its kind in the region. Upon coming to the Lane County College, Dr. Hamilton quickly established herself as a collaborative partner with both higher education and business and industry. She currently serves on the Springfield Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors and Sacred Heart Medical Planning Community Board, River Bend. She also serves on the Connected Lane County Executive Board and on the Equity and Community Consortium. She is a member of numerous organizations in Lane County, including the League of Women Voters, the Eugene Rotary, and the NAACP. She represents the Pacific Northwest for the American Association of Community College, Colleges and represents LCC on the President's Council and the Oregon Community College Association. Dr. Hamilton is a fierce champion for veterans and oversaw the renovation of the Veterans Resource Center on the Lane campus 
expanding services for over 300 veterans in Lane County. And as a veteran, thank you for that, Dr. Hamilton. Since arriving in Lane County Lane Community College in 2017, Dr. Hamilton led the campus in reestablishing full accreditation from the Northwest Commission of Colleges and Universities and is currently leading efforts towards completion of their seven-year self-study in preparation for their fall 2021 accreditation site visit. In addition, she is working with the college community to improve their college-wide governing system and implementation of an equity lens across all segments of the college. Since Dr. Hamilton's arrival in 2017, equity and diversity have become a priority initiative at the college. Through the implementation of their equity lens toolkit, the development of a comprehensive cultural competency, competency professional development program, the president's lecture series, and new policy development to protect the rights of people of color, the LGBTQ community, and all and other represented groups. Dr. Hamilton secured a partnership with Pacific University to bring their uh, satellite campus to the main campus on 30th Avenue. She also signed partnership agreements with Bushnell University and OSU, making transfers seamless and more affordable. She recently signed an agreement with the City of Eugene to bring many of the city offices to the Mary Spilly Center in downtown Eugene. Dr. Hamilton is currently leading the college efforts to develop a new five-year strategic plan. Most recently, Dr. Hamilton led the college in a successful bond campaign, bringing $121.5 million, with an M, million to the college to address safety, security, and accessibility, career and technical education upgrades, and laboratory classroom enhancements. Dr. Hamilton has led the college through the COVID-19 pandemic, Oregon wildfires, social injustice demonstrations, and continuing shortfalls in enrollments and revenues. Yet, she continues to be optimistic about the future of Link Community College and the residents of Lane County. Dr. Hamilton is married to Ron Hamilton, a Navy veteran and retired elementary school teacher. She has two adult children. Her son, Matt, is a regional accounts manager for Thwing Albert, and her daughter, Lauren Hamilton, works as a qualified mental health associate for Lane County Behavioral Health Services. Dr. Hamilton enjoys the symphony, attending Broadway plays at the Holt Center, and enjoying the parks and trails in Lane County. Woo! Dr. Margaret Hamilton, PhD, registered nurse, CEO, and president <laughs> of Lane Community College in Eugene, Oregon. Welcome to Molina Leadership Solution ongoing year-long series of women in leadership. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you for allowing me to help share your history, your journey, these amazing skills and capacity with the community at large. How are you doing this morning? I am doing awesome. Thank you so much for having me here, Mark. This is fun. This is the stuff that that you know you, you just look forward to. You don't get to do. I, it's just it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for doing this. Well, reading your your bio, my first thoughts were. It's a shame that only a few people who went through the hiring process to bring you here, the, the recruiting process, that only a few people know the depth of your skill, your background, and your history. And this is why this series, Women in Leadership, is going to be so important because we need to know we have great leaders like you, experienced leaders like you, prepared leaders like you, within arm's reach of the, of the community at large so that when we need the the qualified help, that help is there. 
I, I appreciate that. You know, it's funny, the, the first half of my career, you know, you're climbing the ladder. And what I always tell young people is do the work nobody else wants to do, do the work. And hearing you read that, I laugh. I, I'm even tired listening to it. I forgot how much, you know, you really forget. And there's so, and I said, there's so many stories of how you even get to those parts. And my overarching message today to the young folks and the young women is just wherever you are, do your best and be absolutely fantastic at that because then that experience keeps building and building. And, and that's what it's all about. And I know Mark, you and I share that goal to, to build new leaders in our community because that's what it's all about, right? I love that thought, wherever you're at, do your best and be fantastic at it. Now you, you're in this amazing uh, place of achievement through years and years of sacrifice and hard work and devotion and commitment. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to how it started. Let's go back to why you wanted to become a nurse. And once you did, what that looked like for you and how you were able to um, work your degree within the realm of service and community. Thank you. So I'm, I guess I would be second generation. My grandparents are all immigrants from Europe and didn't speak English. So I grew up understanding, you know, with a flag waving that this is my country and to be very proud and um, wasn't so sure as a kid. I just knew I loved helping people. Um, you know, the grandparents instilled that hard work ethic, but I did have a grandpa who started to uh, be in the hospital a lot as he got older. And I can still remember he'd come home and he'd be so proud of those nurses. And he'd tell me, you know, uh, Margie, you know, this is, these are good people. These are, and he didn't tell me to be a nurse, but he'd keep going. And I want, and I look back now and I think the turning point is one day he came home from a long illness. And I still remember him and my dad would travel to the Mayo Clinic from New York because he needed some pretty tough care. And he came home with a square of cloth white cloth or blue, I don't remember. And I go, Grandpa, what's that? He goes, he put it in my hand. He, want, he goes, I want you to have this. It's the a piece of, of the nurse's uniform. When, they, when the students graduate, they, that's their, um, their gift to their patients. He had tears in his eyes. He loved them. And I really started to think, well, maybe Grandpa's got something going on here. <laughs> And, and I think that kind of started my journey towards nursing. And, and that's where it all began. And I don't do anything lightly. I jump in both feet. So as soon as I jumped in, although one more backstory, I thought, I thought it was gonna be medicine, pediatrician. And I gotta tell you, Mark, I'm old enough that I, my guidance counselor talked me out of medicine and said, oh no, why would you want to do that? Don't, aren't you going to get married someday? You can't do nursing, you know, and, and I can't believe I didn't really have the strong female role models. And if I did, I would have walked out of that office and said, oh yeah, watch me. <laughs> but instead I listened to that guidance counselor and did go into nursing. I don't regret a day of it. I love the field. But as soon as I found out about this thing called nurse practitioners, I thought, okay, this is good. This is a step up. I'm, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go to university and do it right. And I did. I kept, you know, I, I certainly went on and, and loved the field, always taking leadership roles, even in college. 
because it just felt right. You know, it just felt right. And, uh, you know, as you read in the bio, my husband, Ron, um, was Navy. So as soon as I got out, I went down to Norfolk, Virginia, and um, holy mackerel, that was tough. So coming right, right out of a university setting and then getting thrown into, the, my first job was in intensive care, uh, Norfolk uh, Children's Hospital. Honestly, I don't think I was skill prepared. I was leadership prepared because that's what universities do. But the hands-on skill, I didn't have enough of that. That was hard. I mean, I, I, I say those were the hardest years of my life. Um, I know what it's like to be screamed at by a surgeon, you know, for not being fast enough or not understanding what was going on, but it's okay. You're young, you know, you, you plow through it. Um, and I did a couple of other jobs down there and I ironically filled in for a teacher in an LPN program. That's where the second bug hit this teaching thing. It was like, what? I come back to New Jersey and I wound up at, um, uh, in Camden, loved Camden, New Jersey. You know, it was one of the most dangerous cities in America, one of the most violent cities in America. But that's where my passion for urban, uh, working with urban underrepresented groups started because I got to know them as people. I got to know my patients as people, these young pregnant girls, you know, um, one of my side jobs, I was always working three jobs because I was always going to school again and again, but I used to do home care. It was a program called Little Appleseed and um, I would get a caseload. So I had my day job, but then I'd get a caseload on the weekends and nights and I'd go into Camden and I would visit these moms who just delivered and I would give them counseling, you know, give the mom exam, give the baby exam. Wow. It was, you know, when I look back, I was pretty gutsy back in the seventies because I had no fear, you know, Mark, I had no fear because these folks needed me and that's all I needed to hear. These, these, my lovely patients needed me. And when I look back and I, and this is a true story, you know, when you have fear, you shouldn't do it anymore. And one day I can still remember I had to go in the back of an apartment building. Uh, you know, I parked my little Toyota in the, in the, in the, in the street. And I always left it open because I didn't want anybody breaking into my car. I figured, ah, leave it open. If they want to steal it, steal it. <laughs> At least they won't crack the window. I went around all the way to the back up a tenement, stepped over, you know, there was a lot of drug addiction back in the seventies. And, and can you imagine Mark going into a room and here's this little pregnant teen, not pregnant anymore. She had the baby. And you know, the, the draws, the, the um, you know, she pulled it out and she had the baby in, a, that was the crib. She had the, the towels all stacked up. I cried. I, I, you know, that that's when I thought, wow, we got a lot of work to do in this world. You know, it was, it was just an amazing. So obviously I worked, um, one of my favorite jobs in Camden was working in a clinic and wow that is like holistic helping people you know you're, you're helping them get food and food stamps and and just housing again i was hooked but i kept wanting more you know you know what you wonder what is in this head why can't you be happy i kept wanting more and i loved the education piece so I, of course i went back to grad school the first time i literally was finished that week and this our lady of lords school of nursing the, 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 the head nun who ran the place 
sent a nursing teacher over because she heard one of those nurses in the clinic just finished a degree. Go get her. We need we need teachers. I never even interviewed Mark. They came over. They didn't. I it was just you wonder how how your life happens. And the lady said at lunchtime, so that this nurse faculty member, she says, Sister John, you know, Fran, John Francis, that was her name. John Francis wants to see you at noon. So I'm like, well, okay. I go over and 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 uh, you know the old stereotype, the, the, the nun. She was very strict and stern. She's like, sit down, heart of gold. She hired me on the spot. I mean, it was hysterical. I didn't know. I didn't know this big world of teaching. So here's the good news. They taught me how to teach. I mean, that was. I literally. I'm one of the lucky ones. I got a great mentoring. Again, these are women. Their heart and soul was working in, in, in the city of Camden and they mentored me like, like I was their daughter. I, I can't, when I look back now and I had such great mentors all along the way, you know, in the clinic, I still remember this woman's name. Her name was Marge Kofsky. I don't think she was much older than me, but she was the clinic director. You know, it was a little nerve wracking going back to school after your first baby because my mom stayed home. I didn't, you know, we had to figure all this out. How do you figure out childcare? Marge Kopsky, I can still remember her saying, you can do this, Marge. You come in my office if you don't know how to do this. She helped me figure out how you hire babysitters. She helped me figure out childcare. You know, then Sister John Francis, you know, and, and, and the the teachers there, they helped me learn how to teach when you think about it. So meanwhile, your confidence starts building. But I don't, I will never say I did it alone. These people all like literally hold your hand and they helped you along the way. I will never forget that. And it just kept going throughout my career. So, you know, after a couple of years of teaching, I branched out, I taught part-time because I decided to go back to school yet again, you know, because, you know, misery, I just keep asking for more. <laughs> so I'm going back again. So of course I'm back. To, now I have like three jobs because I'm doing part-time work. Now I'm teaching at Rutgers and uh, this other Rowan University. And lo and behold, I had the second baby, right? And so picture this, I'm breastfeeding, knock at the door, bang, bang, bang. I throw the, um, what do you call them? The little diaper bibs over me, go to the door, Here's a lady I've never met before, cute little woman. She says to me, are you Marge Hamilton? I'm like, yes. She says, well, I'm a librarian at the local community college. This was Camden where my next 30 years happened. She goes, congratulations, we heard you had a baby. I'm like, yeah. She goes, we need a dean in Camden. <laughs> she goes, I think you should apply. <laughs> and I'm like, huh? So this is the second time people bang, bang, bang on my door. I mean, this stuff, you think it doesn't happen. So, cause she heard I had taught at, you know, the, the local nursing school and all that. Son of a gun, same thing. I applied. Now this was longer cause colleges, we take longer to do things. So, so that was the legitimate interview process. And I still remember it was about seven or eight months through the whole interview process, but I wound up coordinating two nursing programs and an entire allied health um, college of, oh my gosh, over a dozen uh, allied health programs. But then I took over sciences, mathematics, and that's when I really cut my teeth in running a college. Uh, I learned so much in that job. 
So talk about role models, right? My dean, my original, so I was, excuse me, I was hired as the assistant dean. The original dean was a female, first female administrator. So now we're in the early 80s in an all-male campus of administration. <laughs> and she was so hysterical. She was a young woman, like well over six feet. She smoked. Back then, everybody was smoking. I did not. But she, she, her way to become an administrator was she became one of the boys. So she was tough, gruff. <laughs> you know, that was, that was it. So her, her goal in life was to mentor me. So here I am again. I had five great years of another fabulous role model. Now, my style was not like hers, but I got great lessons from her. I mean, like phenomenal. So at some point, it's funny, you don't know when you're being groomed. She was grooming her successor. And, and you know what? We all do it now. But at the time, I didn't see that one coming. And when she announced she was going to faculty, it broke my heart because I loved working for this woman. I loved, you know, it's almost like they're shielding you when you've got those good mentors. And then I realized, uh-oh, I'm on my own, aren't I? <laughs> and, and then, so now talk about cutting your teeth. I'm doing it all. I'm doing partnerships. I'm creating new programs, um, you know, writing grants. Um, it, it's what it was being a dean was one of those jobs where you do it all you just do everything and you're always asking for help so you're always learning which was awesome so once I got through all that I finished my doctoral work I realized hmm, maybe, maybe I can help more and and so I had stayed with the health sciences my whole career up until that point and then I realized there's a bigger college, it's time to branch out. So one of the things I found out later is there's a revolving door of executives at colleges. We all just take literally, everybody comes, goes, leaves. That's just the way it is in reality. It's very odd you see somebody stay a very long time. So sure enough, there was a revolving door <laughs> over the next four, five years of vice presidents. And, um, and I helped all of them with different things. Um, that's why the resume gets a little crazy when you look at what I've done. I helped for two years in labor relations. I mean, when I look back now, I can't believe I, I ran HR for two years, but the president needed me. She needed somebody she could trust. And my first response was, are you crazy? I, I don't have that background. I'm a nurse, then a teacher, then a dean. But I'm starting to learn these things. Basic, basic skills of leaders is people trust you, you're ethical, you do the right thing, and you know how to ask for help, Mark. And she's, and this president, which was, by the way, the college's first female president, she said to me, Marge, trust me, I'll get you help. And she did. She got me an attorney, a labor consultant, and I learned on the ground how to do this, but my ultimate goal was still that position with, with an HR professional. But that's only one example. I wound up doing the same thing in the administrative area, learning operations and the operations side of the house. I didn't have a background in that. But again, you use your integrity, your good management skills. You know, it's, they are transferable. 
the takeaway from all of these interesting positions I had was surround yourself around good people, smart people, people who know things you don't know. And I've watched people who were not successful. And I think some, one of the reasons why people are not successful in leadership positions is they're intimidated by folks. Oh, you don't ever want to be intimidated. You want, you want the people that work for you, I say, to be smarter than you, whether they know money, they know finance, they know human resources. And, and since I've been to Lane, that has been my... Um, one of my major goals was to create a super strong leadership team. And they are, Mark. I am just, I am so impressed with the amount of, of knowledge that's here. Like you said, that's in Lane County, but you got to find them, <laughs> right? So, but long story short is, you know, once I became the, the vice president, did, did all this planning and everything, and I've, you know, helped train the last president that was there, I realized, you know, it's, it's time for me to go do this myself because you start getting more opinionated as you get older, don't you? <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just, it's kind of like, geez, I want to do it this way or that way. I always thought I'd stay in New York and New Jersey. Most of my interviewers were there, but um, I had a pull to Oregon because my brother's here. Um, it was a brother that I didn't get to see much because he was always out in the West Coast. Um, so once I came to Oregon, I fell in love with the place. Um, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would ever get an interview out here, never mind land a job. <laughs> so this is kind of like a little dream come true for me to be out here. Um, very much like upstate New York where I grew up, um, you know, the mountains, the rivers, uh, so, so the climate's great, and the college is very much like that last college I was at in Camden. It was multiple locations, um, urban center, suburban center, and then everything in between. So that's kind of the, the whole trajectory, Mark, of, be, of, of being here at Lane. Well, let's go back to the beginning of your story, because I want to make sure that we talk a little bit, that people hear you talk about, it, with this, you guys gave this great a synopsis of the long-term development, but I want to go back to when you first graduated nursing school and what it felt like for you. You mentioned having surgeons yelling at you, things of that nature. Yeah. What was some of the things, fears you had to face, things you had to learn about yourself walking into the ICU fresh, fresh out of nursing school? I was scared. Call it what it is, Mark. No sugarcoating it. I would pray. I was raised very parochial Catholic. <laughs> I prayed 30 minutes that drive in, dear God, please don't let me hurt anybody. I mean, I couldn't even think save people. I was like, don't let me make a mistake, dear God. There was so much going on 24 seven. And, and you get there in these poor little gorgeous babies and their parents and they're, you know, they're there because they're, they've been, oh my gosh, Mark, back in the in the late seventies, um, there were so many odd diseases they didn't even know. Like they, so, things wound up in that emergency room that the docs didn't have answers about. Remember when you couldn't take? Uh, well, back in the seventies, if you had the flu, and then if you took like a Tylenol, there was something called Ray syndrome. But 
and kids were convulsing and getting these horrible reactions. We didn't understand that back then. So we were having kids come in with these convulsions. I saw things like um, arsenic poisoning. Because while I'm in Norfolk, Virginia, as a regional hospital, we were getting stuff out in the, the rural area. That was a family, like all the, the kids were drinking arsenic from the well and nobody knew. We saw bad stuff. And here I am, this little kid, you know, I call myself a kid looking back now. I'm only in my early 20s. I had never seen any of this stuff before. I was scared. I, I'm not afraid to say it. Um, I don't think I slept for the first year because you're wired, you know, and, and uh, I, I am a very devout spiritual person. I prayed so much it wasn't, wasn't funny. Um, so, but you know, that thing called the, uh, I'm sure you've heard it before, the imposter syndrome, where you look at what people are doing and you say, I can't do this, I can't do this. And then all of a sudden you are doing it. And then you're doing it well, and then you're comfortable in your shoes. I can honestly say I had the imposter syndrome for most of my career. <laughs> I don't think I didn't have it until the presidency. This is the first time I'm like, I got this, I'm ready. <laughs> but yeah, Mark, it was very scary. It was intimidating for sure. Now let's trans let's go forward to your change you've changed positions. You're now gone into community nursing where you're outside of the four walls. You've been exposed to a lot of scary things for the first time in your life, having to deal with so many unknowns, which is part of our leadership growth and development, personal professional development. What skills did you know you were taking and how did they prepare you to begin to go out into the community in Camden, the most violent city in America at that time, and be willing to walk into impoverished, violent neighborhoods, dangerous neighborhoods, to meet these young mothers with their brand new babies and help them? You know, back in, back in the day, raised, uh, being raised in the nursing culture, it was about care just the plain one word, care. If you really genuinely care for people, the rest will, will work itself out. And I knew in my heart, the baby, are we back? We're back. Oh, sorry, I think we froze. Um, so the basic skills to me were caring and empathy. Uh, I, I mean it, I think the, the, that more than any of the nursing skills or anything, um, being young, like I said, I was very, um, self-confident. So um, oddly enough, the, the fear of once I was with my patients, that, that wasn't so much a thing. Um, when I look back now, I can't get over. I didn't have more fear to tell you the truth. I was most comfortable though in, in those, um, those positions working in the clinic and uh, working with those clients. Um, they taught me, Mark, can I tell you something? They taught me stuff. They taught me about life. They taught me about grit. You know, I don't, I will never complain about anything because no matter what, I got a roof over my head right now. I had a hot dinner last night. I got a car in the garage. You know, these folks taught me, they wanted to go on to school. And that was my connections probably to my next phase. They, they had a dream. Everybody, it doesn't matter whether whether your parents had uh, had opportunity or not. They still had dreams. Now, 
my job was to help them realize those dreams in like for me it was babies i was helping them with their newborns but a lot of them wanted to go back to school and get training and guess what mark a lot of them wanted to work at the hospital which of course made my heart sing because i wanted them to to and and we tried to show them stepwise and you noticed a lot of um my academic work is in uh, program development. And one of the things I always impressed upon, and I, to this day, ask anybody at Lane, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pusher of what I call uh, credentialing and step career ladders, because you can't just jump into the pool. I was lucky. My parents helped me go right to college. Not everybody can do that. You know, we're going to talk a little probably about the equity lens and 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 how do you do equity to mean equity to me means people can still have the same dreams and goals, but we may all have to get there differently. So these really young people that I was working with and and they, they you know, they were young, they were having some they were having some families early on babies, but they still had the same dreams. Some of them still wanted to be nurses. And they should be able to have that dream. But, you know, maybe we had to help them get a, a GED first. And maybe we had to help them, uh, you know, figure out how to um, walk to the local community college and meet with an advisor. Because they didn't have parents that would show them that. So real basic skills for me back in the day, empathy and caring, that pushed me to whatever it is I needed to do with my jobs. It's a big, you know, I'm a small town Texas boy. So I didn't really know much about life outside of Texas. Yeah. Until I joined the U.S. Army. And then you get to basic training and all of a sudden you're with people from all walks of life, all areas of the U.S. and the world. And your entire lens changes on what is someone else's reality, what is someone else's life looks like. And you become a different person in the process. And your understanding expands, your horizons expand. And as you say, your empathy also expands. When you walked away from the nursing piece of going into people's homes and, and what, a, what, a, what a compelling season I'm sure that was, what from those lessons learned did you take into teaching at the university as you went into the next phase of your professional development? Big lesson. And, and, uh, and the lesson hit home when I was almost finished with my doctoral work. And, um, you know, that these highly regarded research nurses, you know, they, they've all been academics. They're trying to mentor us towards our next jobs, you know, or where we should be looking. And I had already made up my mind community college. I mean, this was it because those early patients, that's where they were going. I was making a difference in their lives. And, and just by them coming to the community college, we changed, radically changed our lives. Ironically, that was not the mentoring I was getting at university. The university wanted, they said, literally, literally said to me, you'll ruin your career if you go back to the community college. I was dumbfounded because they had not recognized the worth of what was happening at the entry level of society, as far as I'm concerned. 
So my first biggest, my biggest lesson that working in Camden directly with my clients and my patients was that that early, before we even put words to it, what equity meant, that everybody can achieve greatness, but they're all going to have different pathways, different doors, and you can't shut down those doors. You got to have the access. And, and the fact that when my mentors at university, the doctoral program said to me, that was the first time that, you know, you'll ruin your career. And I said, no, actually, I'll make my career. And I realized that was the first time I didn't have imposter syndrome because I thought, no, 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 I know more than you all know because I know how valuable my leadership skills will be in the community and in a community college setting. I never looked back. I never looked back. Were you aware, I mean, in, in that moment of looking back, and in this conversation, I mean, all of a sudden, I, I can see you in this transition of your mind, your convictions, your awareness that you were a different person. You were a different <clears throat> type of nurse. You were a different leader. You were a different kind of teacher. Your sense of purpose and direction was now yours. You owned your philosophical perspective. How did that translate into your ability to better serve students and the teaching community with this new uh, awareness from these dramatic experiences that you had? So if you think about it, and you've been you've served in the service, thank you for your service, by the way. Uh, you know, nursing and military have a lot in common. We're very rules oriented, very regimented. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the nursing that I learned in, in the 70s was extremely um, coming out of a very uh, 50s model of, of, of teaching. So one of the things that working with my clients taught me is one size does not fit all in education. And, you know, that was back in the heyday, standardized tests were everything, right? It was like, oh my God, you had to make the mark that was it. You couldn't get into school if you didn't hit all these marks. And um, that's when I really started to question the boxes, the lines, the checks, because they were not equitable. They didn't give access and it didn't, it, and, and the education system was not opened to being creative, to helping people achieve their best. Now, just because I questioned it doesn't mean I made a difference because I was still in a more traditional, you know, like I said, starting to teach nursing in a Catholic school, if you think about it, it was parochial. It was a great school, but it was very linear in how we taught. So, but, so now that I'm at the community college, I was happy that you can crack things open a little bit. And we had committees on accessibility and we had, you know, programs, but I always knew it wasn't enough. You know, you just know it's not enough. And back in now I'm in the 80s and the 90s, I devoted a lot of my deanship and vice presidency to creating programs to get minorities in the pipeline. Because think about it, minorities, women, anybody underrepresented, because 
when you we, we'll talk about how you know hiring people i truly believe in my heart of hearts and this all goes back to my early days that you have to widen the pipeline and to widen the pipeline of applicants whether it be for a nursing school or a welding program or or your job you have to start way back we actually have to start in k-12 don't we we have to make sure that they even know these jobs exist and not let them feel intimidated. One of the best things we ever did was to bring middle schoolers on a college campus, walk them around, let them eat in the cafeteria, um, uh, let them see the gym and let them feel like this is theirs. This isn't something other families do. This is for them. So one of the, the early programs, and I've, I've been doing women's leadership programs in my career way back. So we would bring young women in and let them feel comfortable in their skin because talking to people about leadership is one thing, but where's your action plan? You know, Mark, we got to do stuff. We got to make them feel good about that. And, um, you know, there, there's this program uh, at the Lane campus right now um, that brings in young, uh, young people, middle, middle school and high school that are, uh, could be African-American, Native American, Asian American, to get comfortable. If you think about it, they get people comfortable on a college campus so they know, hey, I can do this. So it's, it's, I think it affected how I approach growing that next generation. Mark, we got to keep going low, lower and lower. I swear, it, it's, it's almost elementary school now to let them feel like they really can aspire to do these things, but we have to continue to bring them along. Now, as you, you said, in the 80s and 90s, you devoted your deanship and vice pres presidency to helping minorities. What, kind, what did you learn about the education system at that time? What did you have to confront or contend with regarding resistance or acceptance from your peers and colleagues within this system? Okay, the system wasn't set up for it. That's number one. One of the, one of the uh, one of the grants I particularly remember is we got some state funding, and we were building all these health centers in in, in the city. But you know, you need all levels of health pr practitioners. So we thought, all right, let's work with the high school. Let's get a funnel of maybe juniors and seniors, and teach them basic nursing skills so that they can go through like being a medical assistant first because that that's that career ladder approach. So okay, in theory, it sounded great. We wrote a grant. We had three partners: the, the city of Camden. It was a state initiative, uh, you know, for a, a workforce initiative. We had uh, one of our major hospitals, Cooper Hospital. We had the community college. So we had all the players. Right? It should work. <laughs> Not so much because the systems are there systemically back then. They were not set up for success for those with less opportunity. So, um, just something as simple as showing up, <laughs> right? We expect you to show up every day. Let's say it was four o'clock. I forget the details, but attendance and having people, and it's not that people didn't wanna come, these young people, but they couldn't get their ride. They didn't have their bus pass. Um, they didn't, have, you know, things, we weren't thinking of that back then. So it was one step forward, two steps backward. 
one step forward, two steps backward. That's when I, now, meanwhile, my brain, I'm learning, I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm learning. You know, we got students through that. We got people to graduate. But when you think about all the obstacles that happen just to take a typical 16 or a 17 year old, get them to the, the urban campus or the hospital, show up with your uniform and your book, then go home, do the studying. Now, systems weren't set up for that. So many things went wrong or they come in at five o'clock, they're starving because they didn't really eat lunch that day. So, you, you know, so then you have to think about, oh, well, maybe we need to provide food. And, and then what are they, what kind of a situation are they going home to? Did we set up mentors? We didn't think of all that back then. So as you fail, then the next one, you do better. You know, was it my Angelou? You do, do better until you know better, and then do better again. You know, and it's a, you don't know it all. But I laugh when I look back. I always say, "Oh, I've made every mistake until the next mistake." You know, you, you, and not that they were mistakes. We just didn't know what was going to work back then. You know, I'm a child of the '70s too. I'm born. I was born in '64. So you know, my father died at 39 of a of a heart attack. Well, he had a heart attack at home, then ultimately he died of a stroke. But I want to confirm what you're talking about in regards to medical science, things of that nature, because the doctors kept telling him it was just indigestion and kept giving him Rolates. The military doctors until he had a, a heart attack at home. So nursing was not medical science back then was definitely not what it is today. Not even close. Um, in your journey of education, in your advanced degrees, did was there talk, was there studies around the differences in races, cholesterol, heart, how to help uh, the different uh, socioeconomic challenge people maybe in America? That might, I don't know how to say, uh, I'm trying to, ask what it's like getting your PhD in nursing. Do they talk about such things? They did. In fact, nursing talked about it probably more to medicine. <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that I didn't go to medical school, but we, we, um, my faculty were all coming out of NYU Cornell. They were big on um, socioeconomic research. So they used the, the research coming out of uh, sociology to look at that. It was really that whole research project of the 70s and the 80s was looking for the first time at urban neighborhoods and why people, uh, first of all, who was getting ill and then why were they getting ill? And then where nursing came in is what could we do to prevent the illness? So medicine was treating illness, but my field was looking at preventing it. So we found that the tiniest core of people were causing the most expense at the hospitals. And the reason why is it was the same core, let's say diabetics. We all know uh, cardiac and diabetes. Let's face it, they were, they were like the two reasons why people get ill and wind up with complications. But if you came from a low socioeconomic or maybe English wasn't your first language and you couldn't read the bottle, you know, the, the, there were super basic things that we knew we could actually work with. We could prevent just by spending more time up front. That's when the whole wellness 
the whole wellness trend was happening because up the 50s and the 60s, you were just treating medically. But, but by then, people are very, very ill. So the, the research that came, was coming out of, and I feel really lucky, maybe, and you know what, I have to give credit to these, these they were women, they're all women, all my teachers back in the day, but they were coming out gung-ho about the research about um, prevention and wellness care, uh, trumping really always just focusing on treating the acute illness because that is that is truly medicine should treat but we were more focused on prevention and um, there was a there was a dynamo guy that came out of Camden um, I don't know if you ever heard it there's something called the genius award and and this guy uh, was uh, Dr. Brenner I think is his name we can look it up later and he was one of the first ones to do some research in Camden that showed that the smallest, a very small amount of people created the most amount of expenses in healthcare. And that if we focused on them and sent nurses and uh, community health workers to let's say the diabetics house. So if the diabetic lives on fourth street, if you just go visit him once a week and say, hey, Joe, did you take your meds? Did you do this, do that? We could prevent long-term illness and hospitalization. So it was, it was kind of cool. I have to admit that that research intrigued me because of my interest in public health back in the day. And even today, as a matter of fact. At what point in your ascension through the ranks, through the years of hard work and devotion and learning and education, at what point, you're, you've become aware of a lot of things now in your development in the positions that you held, in the areas and the neighborhoods, and the people that you serve, when did you begin to see this adjustment into the types of students that were beginning to come in, and the power that you ha you had, and your colleagues had to truly make an impact in those areas? Early, early, and that that was, and I, I'd say definitely by the '90s, I knew, I knew, I needed to stay in community colleges because I knew we were making an impact and I could see that something like a scholarship and I'm so lucky to be a president and have a big chunk of what I do working with donors. You know, when I tell a donor, your dollar helps save lives, helps transform lives. I'm not kidding. I mean, I can say, do you know what, what one term of tuition, how that could actually change a person's life because it could help them see I can do this. So I'd say really early on, by, uh, by the 90s, I saw how valuable community colleges were. And I absolutely was committed that this is where I wanted to spend the rest of my life. The, these people, this institution is doing the right thing for, lo for the local economy, the economy and the, the quality of life. You know, it helps people raise them out of poverty. And, and one of the sayings we said, going back as far as the 90s, I had this first female president, Phyllis Delvecchi, I still remember her. She says, we build the middle class, Marge. We build the middle, don't you ever forget that. She'd point her finger at me and lecture me. <laughs> She'd go, don't you ever forget that. And I was like, wow, okay, that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> How uh, common, I mean, you said all your teachers were, were women, many of them nuns. 
How common was it back then? Were, were the women that were in leadership in your life, were they primarily at the community college level? Were they in the, were they also at Rutgers and these other schools that you attended? So I would say first and foremost, uh, they all, the ones that I really consider my best mentors were all of the mindset of public health. So that very first manager that hired me in uh, in a clinic, just an awesome lady. That was the first time I saw that women can have it both ways. <laughs> I never knew any woman that did that, that worked in a, as a manager and, and raised a family. Like that was astounding. Um, the women that were my teachers, I love them because of their research. Uh, but I wouldn't say they were my best role models for doing it, for trying to uh, have a, a family life and that, because most of them, their research and their jobs were their lives, but that's okay. That was, that was another role model in a different direction. Um, and then out in the community, I started to meet some like amazing people. Um, but because my background was so healthcare, I mostly met these women in the hospitals and uh, in the healthcare systems. Um, and then eventually, um, different types of, uh, I have to admit though, I had some good male role models later. So now I'm established. I got through understanding the healthcare career, the teaching, but once I got to the university, um, not the university, but to my, uh, administrative positions in colleges, I really worked with some cool men. I have to say that some really cool men, um, Ray Yanutzi, uh, one of my presidents, um, he'd spend so much time with me kind of sitting back and talking about why things happen at the college and how we can help. And he had such an equity lens, again, before it had a name, you know, always trying to be fair. Uh, and, and one of Ray's passions, for example, was for the disabled. So that would be everything from intellectual disability, which was why another segment of my career I didn't even write about was we gosh, I feel like we spent years building programs for the hearing impaired and uh, autistic and students with intellectual disabilities. And, uh, you know, that's a long-term goal still I have for Lane. We really haven't gotten that far yet, but part of our um, professional development series is now we're, we're, we're getting into that. We're also looking at uh, how you can help students with autism or, or on the autistic spectrum. So, so I would say later in my career, I started working more with men and I absolutely love the, the lessons. I mean, even here, I mean, Mike Eister on our board, I, you know, he was one of the first folks that, that showed me around Springfield and, and helped mentor me to learn uh, the, uh, about the leaders and connect me with all the leaders in town. So definitely progression over the years. Let's pivot if we can to this area of equity. What does that mean to you, March? You are CEO and president of the local community college. What does that mean to you? How do you communicate that? How do you lead people through that? And how do you make sure that platforms are offered and extended? You mentioned many things. When I say equity, I, I, I say it with the things that you just, to include the things you've mentioned, people with learning disabilities, veterans, uh, it, it, very uh, broad, 
but what is your goal, your plan, your vision? How do you lead people through that? How do you manage that in, the, in, in terms of equity? I, I think from a very broad perspective, and I'm glad you said that it is broad. You know, we, I know we talk about race and gender and now sexual identity, but that list is long. We have to keep going. So number one, equity to me, it ultimately means I can have the same dreams and goals as folks that came from a home where they had the opportunities, all right? So me, Marge Bernieri, that's my maiden name, right? I'm in this uh, first, second generation home of immigrants, right? Um, I didn't have the money to go to a, a fancy school. You know, my dream was to go to college, be a nurse, so, you know, so the fact that my parents, my mom had to work, you know, let's say two jobs to have spare money to help me pay a state tuition, that's okay, right? Because it got me, it got me into the university. But what about one of my classmates who's maybe, maybe a parent died and they didn't, and they only had one income and they stayed locally at the community college, let's say, they still wanted to be a nurse, right? But they got their two-year degree. So, so that's so one of the very first ways you look at the equity lens is can I, if the goal was to be an RN or, or a healthcare professional, can I get there in different ways? Because if I wasn't privileged and born in a household where that money was there, and where encyclopedias were, where your dad, where your mom, I, now this is showing my age. The encyclopedias came from the grocery store. My mom got one a, one a week or one a month, I guess. You, got, you came home with A. <laughs> I'd sit on the floor and I'd read that encyclopedia until the next month, <laughs> mother got one. So, so that's silly, I know, but equity means giving everybody a chance, doesn't it, Mark? Everybody needs a chance, but we're all going to get there through, through different steps. One of my favorite pictures is here's the fence, right? It's the straight fence. And then there's different steps. We all, so if I'm five foot, <clears throat> I, I need the one foot step. If I'm three foot, I need the two foot step. And it shows that we all, the goal is to look over the fence, but we need a different height of the step stool. There's another little cartoon or a meme floating around the internet. And it, it's kind of like, um, okay, let's all be fair here. Um, and we've got a fish, we've got maybe a goat, right? And we're, and we're gonna see who's, who's the most athletic and see who can swim and there's the goat. Well, no, I don't, have, I don't have fins. So it's giving people what they need to achieve their goal and recognizing we're all not starting at the, at the same level. I am so not a fan of standardized tests. And yet years ago, I actually served on the college board to, to develop these tests, you know? And, and now that I look back, I see how much harm they've caused to tell you the truth. So I think equity from a very large perspective is recognizing we all come to this world at different places we just want to give everybody the same opportunity. They still have to do the work. 
you know, in, 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 a, in a field like nursing or medicine, you still have to achieve certain levels of knowledge, but you are all going to need different levels of help to get there. And by golly, we need open doors. You can't close the door because I don't walk up with the right briefcase, you know? Oh, Mark, think about how we used to hire people back in the day. Very specific, check this box, check that box. You know, it, was that really opportunity? Mm, not so much because people can have skills, but they got their different ways. So the way I look at it right now at the college is first of all, where are the gaps? Um, one of my great mentors at the college for, for diversity and equity is Greg Evans. You know, he's, he's, a, he's a leader in the community. And, and you know, Greg spends a, a great amount of time working with us, mentoring us, and, and providing lots of professional development. And I have so much more to learn, Mark. Every time I, I watch one of his videos, we have another discussion. It gives me another worldview. It's helping us realize we don't have all the answers. I, we don't. I will never say I have all the answers. I just have more questions. So equity for me, giving students of every possible background an opportunity to have a goal, get on a path and meet that goal. That's huge. And not be afraid someone's going to deter them from that goal. And, you know, we use terms like discrimination and harassment. They're barriers. At the end of the day, they're all barriers. They're things that we do so that people can achieve their goals. So we got to work hard to let people know that we have to take down those barriers and make sure that student deserves just that, that student on the autism's, autistic spectrum. If he wants, he or she wants to be an accountant by golly, we should, we should do everything possible, but they may have a hard time sitting in a classroom for an hour. Right. So, so that would be, a, you know, that equity lens, we're looking at it from who, who isn't at the table, whose voices aren't being heard. So I'm big at who isn't at the table, whose voices aren't we hearing and how can we hear their voices and how can we help them achieve whatever their goals are. Um, that's just like an overview, I guess. How do you, as a staff, as a leader, as the president and CEO of Lane Community College, what's the strategy in dealing with veterans that have severe PTSD? Do you have one? Do you, have you talked about that? So I would be first off to say not my area of expertise, but I will say I'm, I've read so much about PTSD and um, I've talked to our veterans themselves and I've talked to the people that run the program and one of the one of the primary ways I think that we could help is to have that center so if you have the center where they can come in and talk to each other mm -hmm. so I, I think my best my best understanding is this is a case where you don't know what they're feeling and there is absolutely nothing that you could even read, even me, I could read about it, but I'm not experiencing it. Um, you know, my, my daughter dated a, a veteran for a long time. And that's when I learned about something like loud noises, like the fireworks going off. 
how it could trigger. Um, I think he was in Afghanistan a couple of ter- uh, what do you call it? A couple of uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and and spiders. Like who would think a spider would trigger a PTSD? But apparently, where they were, there were these monster spiders and just interesting ways that trigger flashbacks. So my point of the spider or the fireworks is you never know what will trigger the PTSD. Um, you don't know if, if a veteran doesn't attend for a couple of days that unless somebody reaches out, they're not just being lazy. They're not just not showing up. They might be in a, they might be experiencing depression and not knowing where to reach out for help. So some takeaways is you never know what you don't know as us trying to work with folks that have experienced these problems. Um, and having support groups is key. I think having support groups, they, like many other uh, groups of folks, they we all do better when people have been walked those same, walk the walk, right? So I'm, I'm big on setting up groups and places where our veterans can share their stories with each other and then bringing in other veterans who have been through it or are still going through it, but can share their stories on how they get through it. So that's the kind of ways that we could help bringing in people to speak to them and reaching out and don't just sit back. Cause if, if they're really hurting and you don't reach out, we're gonna miss them. So we talked about barriers and equity you know, and, and I really believe our veterans need our help because they were raised in a very, um, not raised, but they were trained in a very regimented system where you don't ask for help. You know, you, now I know that's an extreme, but you have to, they're trained to be independent veterans and, and critically think and think on their feet. So it's kind of not the norm to say, I need help. People, there are folks that might feel that's a weakness. So one of the things that we're trying to do at the college is to provide support services uh, proactively, not retro, not that you have to come ask for it, but have these services and more of a communal place where our student veterans can talk about things. So that's, again, I'm not an expert in this, but I know enough to know that um, they deserve an education they deserve to come back and start over, but they will need accommodations. They will need to, they will need our help. And sometimes that's complicated. Very good. Let's talk about how did you lead your institution through this pandemic, the shutting down of the schools, classes? How did you keep your staff, your, your, your instructors motivated, focused? and get the college itself moving into this direction of online quickly and efficiently so people could continue with their educational journeys and goals? Oh boy, (laughs) that's a big one, Mark. Um, We are learning as we go. And this is one of the many times a, a, a leader gets to say it takes a village, okay? Boy, this took a huge village. I had so many highly qualified people leading this. I'm there as the um, setting the tone, being optimists. You know, I I like to use the term the cheerleader. You know, I I have to set the tone and say, we're going to get through this. 
But in the reality is I have people that are much better at this than I am. So we have people called instructional designers. As soon as this happened back in March, and I can still remember it, I can still remember making the phone call and say, we have to close now. Um, all of a, So then my provost, he jumped into gear. First thing we thought about is training people. If they're gonna work from home, we have to train them. But wait, you can't train them until you get the hardware and the software. So, you know, it's kind of like you with a military background, you're in crisis management now. You, you are, so everybody at the college who, uh, whatever sector they were in, they started to do their best crisis management. So finance was like, uh-oh, where are we gonna get the money? Um, the, the instructional designers is, okay, we have to set up a two-week training program for folks that have never taught online. Um, the computer people, the IT people, oh my God, they are like saints. What they had to do to get everybody to have a laptop, uh, screens, we had no idea, Mark, what we were in for. When I tell you we had no idea, we did not because we had no idea the Wi-Fi issues. I mean, people surmised it, but it wasn't until you sent them all home, we realized the Wi-Fi issues that we were gonna be facing and the technology. <laughs> I, you know, I, I was probably one of the biggest pains because I didn't know how to do Zoom. I didn't know how to do all this. So magnify that. It takes a village. My provost jumped in, my CIO jumped in, finance jumped in, uh, people that do advising, they jumped in. Uh, the, the texts were blowing up. How about this? Can we do that? So that was March, literally March. By April, we started losing students, Mark. Let's, let's be real. This was not, this did not go well. <laughs> I mean, on paper, it went well. We did it. We checked the boxes, but the students were overwhelmed. I think we dropped maybe as much as 16%. Like they just, Students just didn't want to come back. Nobody knew how long term this was going to be. So they figured, well, I'll pick it up the next term. Nobody saw this coming. Um, our faculty jumped in great. And what they did is they got heavily involved with what we call the reopening team, along with our classified staff. So we had the, the three employment groups, managers, classified and faculty, and they created what was called the COVID reopening team. So that meant everybody's home right now, right? So it's March, everybody's home. But what if you're um, a public safety officer? What if you need a library book? We had no rules for this, right? So we created this team who, who have been amazing. They have met literally every Tuesday since March and they'll probably continue to meet for the next couple of weeks and months to make sure that anybody that steps foot on the campus is safe and doesn't spread, you know, me being safe is one thing, but then I can't, I can't set it up so that I'm spreading it. So then we had to have the whole physical plant. We had to look at cleaning the buildings, um, every possible protocol. So if you recall, childcare was an issue early on, not only in Springfield, but, but in, in Eugene and all around. So we, we stepped up and said, how do we open the childcare center? So those folks had to do what we call a reopening plan. Um, the hospitals, they were saying, oh my gosh, we need your graduates. <laughs> my nurses are getting tired. We need fresh blood. 
So we had to figure out how do we get the nurses, nursing students to finish and the paramedic students and the physical therapy students, how do we get them to finish? And if you can recall, Mark, it felt like every other day we were getting new guidance or a new proclamation coming out of Salem, right? Uh, these executive orders. So literally since March, I've been on morning calls with the state um, once a week on what's coming out of Salem with COVID. Um, and then we have teams doing it. So my role is to be optimistic, to be positive, but to be truthful. Right? Isn't that what we expect out of our leaders on the television at the six o'clock news? Tell it to us straight, right? Tell, tell us what's going on. What is our role? Um, but my next level of executives, they've all taken on the different parts of this. Um, everything from insurance, legal, finances, et cetera. It's, but I will not kid you, this has been probably the hardest thing on our teachers and our students. I mean, they all, they all deserve awards. I mean, there, there is no one person um, and they are continuing to be exhausted, Mark. And this is what scares me. People are exhausted. You know, we took away the line from home and work. You know, usually you leave work, you come home, you know, maybe you have a beer, a glass of wine, you relax. The line's gone. It's, it's blended. This laptop is on all the time now. And we're burning our eyes out from Zoom. <laughs> people are tired. I my greatest wish is by summer people can get out and enjoy each other a little bit. You know, I can only hope. So, um, I am hopeful that by summer there's a crack open of all of this, and that by fall there'll be some normalcy or new normalcy on a college campus. And on top of all of this, the Lane Community College put out for a bond. Yeah. And it was successful, which for me tells the story of the confidence of the voters yeah. in LCC and its leadership and the promises that you and the board made to ensure that that money went to the purposes it said it was going to go to. How has that been going you you reached out for civic involvement to be participatory in these processes how are those things going and have you been able to initiate the plans to address the areas of need yeah absolutely Th thanks for asking that because the um the bond community group is essential to uh, uh to gaining the the voters trust and I've, I've talked to other folks. Um, it's a great committee, by the way. They, they have, it's a very large, they had their first meeting and the questions just one after another, after another. And, and that's why I know it's a good group. There was, a, there's everybody from superintendents who've done this before. Um, and what, and we've got a, a retired legislator, some superintendents, people from construction. These folks get it. I mean, it was so impressed the level of interest and knowledge that we're bringing to the table. So I so step one was form the committee. We've got it now. Um, we're in a process now. We're just sending them lots of materials and we're gonna set up a website. So we've got a bond website right now that's easy to find. But now what we're gonna do is put all the materials that we're putting out to the community. We're on schedule. I mean, the good news is we're on schedule. 
And I look back now, I don't know what we would have done without the bond. I cannot, I just cannot stop thanking people that they trusted us. But I got to tell you, um, you know, when it comes to HVAC systems, roofs, we'd have been in a quite a pickle, <laughs> Mark, if we didn't, because that's how, I don't know if you remember, because I know you and I chatted a lot about this, but we had over that $90 million of deferred maintenance that was, that number just kept going up. So we're on schedule, everything's going well. And I'm learning a lot, by the way, about the process, which is um, quite interesting. And we, again, we, our board is so committed to a fair and equitable process with these construction projects. We wanna make sure women and minorities, small, large, mostly local, where possible, buy local, right? We wanna make sure everybody has the opportunity to to benefit from these projects. So that's that's how this process is gonna go. Are you doing what you say you're doing? Are you on schedule? Are you, you know, using the equity lens? Are you buying local where possible? Um, you know, that, so that's going on right now. And we're gonna be transparent. We're gonna put everything on the website so people can take a look at it whenever they're interested. Well, for me, you showed me your medal as a leader at the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors meeting when the the request for support of the bond came forward, and I grilled you, and I did not give you an easy path because I'm a voter and I'm a taxpayer and it's important to me, and you demonstrated to me that morning through your convictions, your preparedness, your willingness to answer the hard questions, to stay in the process with me your determination that and why you believed that this was absolutely necessary. And I had been out at LCC in 2009, so I knew many of the things that uh, you had mentioned were indeed considerations, but these are natural engagement processes that have to take place in the realm of leadership. And I wanted to say that uh, to honor you and to honor your, your leadership that day, but I do want to pivot. We've got about 10, 15, 10, 11 minutes left. I want to pivot to messages of leadership. I want to know if you could speak to a room full of young women asking the questions in the meeting of leadership and learning there at LCC. Dr. Hamilton, what should we do? We want to, we want to grow as leaders, but we don't know what to do. We, we want to take a next step, but we don't know what that looks like. I want to come I want to become more but I don't know how or I want to do something different but I'm too afraid what would you say to those kinds of questions to that kind of audience oh thanks Mark I, I do this all the time by the way uh, I, I chat with women about this first thing I say is 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 you got to go inside yourself what makes you happy you know I used to do uh, workshops on uh, career career development and you know what just don't even think about making money. What makes you happy? And then you think and you think, okay, because if that isn't a part of your job, or if you can't integrate those, those basic values, you are gonna have a problem. So you have to really sit back on what makes you feel fulfilled, what makes you feel happy. You gotta look at your value system. This is important. And, and a lot of my more recent reading uh, has been, and also going through strategic planning has helped me realize you can't underestimate stating your values, but you got to know what they are first. We are our values, okay? 
So I can't put myself in a career track that is contrary to my value system. All right. So what makes me happy? What are my values? And then I tell people, write it down. Old fashioned, write it down. Be re Remind yourself of that. From there, then they look at the various careers and set a goal. I didn't at 20 say I wanted to be a college president, but even five-year goals and write it down. And it changes. Of course it will change, but have purpose. You know, you, when you read books on how to create habits, you know, these are basic things about habits, writing it down. That way, all your small steps are leading towards that goal, right? I mean, this is kind of basic. And then I always, and, you, and I alluded to this earlier, no matter what job you are, even if you're not on that path yet, be so good, so good, they want you back. So good that they can't, they can't survive without you. Make yourself invaluable. And if that job is um, uh, reading transcripts or if it's uh, registering students or if, if I'm at the local, uh, it, it doesn't matter. Have a work ethic, show up, show up early. Leave after everybody else. Show enthusiasm, be positive, don't complain. These basic skills are what every employer across every, I mean, I talk to, Mark, you talk to people for a living too. You know, this is what every employer wants. They want somebody who's going to be a team player, be optimistic, show up, be accountable. Wow, that gets you there. And, and then the other thing you heard me say earlier is just do it fantastic. And then, and then the other thing I talk about a lot is do the work nobody else wants to do for your boss, all right? There are always jobs that are a pain, right? Aren't they, Mark? It's just like it's, it's going to take a lot of behind-the-scenes work or maybe you've got to travel. <clears throat> Step up and do it. Do the work nobody else wants to do because not only are you going to make people note, people will notice, but they will reward you later. Maybe not today, but they, it will come back at you. Even if that reward means at your next, that next interview, they'll be a reference for you. I mean, it's just, it's, you need people to trust you and, and, you know, being accountable, it, it means everything in the world. I think someday that book I'm going to write or that article, I mean, all those points on leadership will always come up. You know, first reflect what's making me happy, right? What are my value systems? And then have that first goal and then taking those steps. And I tell a lot of young women all the time is when's the last time you've updated your resume and folks that work in a place a long time, what do I need to do that for? I says, oh yeah, you need to do that every year. Like maybe you do it New Year's, you know, that week or do it in the summer you update that resume because it's telling you how much you've progressed and what your skills are. I tell everybody, no matter how secure you are in your current job, you rewrite that resume and look at where have you been? What professional development? Here's a, here's a job, my dad, here's a, a thing my dad taught me. And he said, Margaret, you always, always read 
and and take training no matter what you're doing he goes and he and he was he came from the business world so he says you know you're professional he had that wall street journal always on the kitchen table i thought it was the driest looking imagine an 18 year old looking at that like Ugh. and he'd go that's my world business he goes i read that newspaper every day he goes no matter what you do read the newspapers the journals stay on top of your field and then of course this is not as relevant but i'll call it dress for success in other words be prepared and professional at, at for that next always be professional to the next level you want to be at so you have to start seeing and feeling like the next level whatever you're in now you know, if you want to get to, to the executive suite, start, you know, reading the, the same materials, looking at the journals, talking with them, where, where you know, what avenues are you in? So I, I think a lot of this is what you and I would probably call common sense, but it's common sense after you've done it for many years, right? But when I have a group of, of aspiring young women with me, these are the types of, of um, ad, advice and uh, suggestions that I will give them along the way. I think that's very important. I appreciate you saying that because for me, that also has to do with equity because a lot of people don't get to hear those things every day. A lot of people don't get to grow up in settings where they get to have uh, good messages, balanced messages from people that love them and care about them. LCC has a significant population of single moms, homeless students, uh, very poor students, uh, students that rely on the meals uh, that I remember when I was going to that re relied on the meals they were going to get at the school that day or they weren't going to get to eat. And so for those that would say, oh, it, these conversations aren't necessary. These scenarios aren't real. These people have the same opportunity that I have to show up and do do the job that I can do. It, that's absurd. Uh, walk a mile in someone else's shoes and then come back and, and see if your perspective is the same. So for me, hearing you say that, is absolutely uh, fills my heart with gratitude first of all but that you as a leader see know and understand that these are the necessary conversations to help aspiring leaders especially young women who want to become leaders get to that very next place thank you what would you say to what would you like to say to the community lane county eugene springfield who trust you who believe in you who trust in you to manage these five locations to make sure that the education that they're gonna get is real, it's credible, it's viable, and it's legitimate. So I would say to anyone, and I'm, and it's not just young folk. I mean, we really want to retrain our adult learners, by the way. So so those folks that are you know 50 years old or 18 years old, I really wanna say, trust us and, and we have your back. But I need to say, it isn't going to be easy because I will, like I said, I got I to gotta tell it like it is. It's going to be one of the most difficult things you ever did because you will have to be accountable to time, to teachers who talk and think differently than you about topics you've never heard about before. You're going to scratch your head. We want you to challenge, but it's going to be uncomfortable. You know, if you ever watch a workout video, a lot of the, a lot of the physical trainers say, get comfortable being uncomfortable. I love that. I think higher ed should pick that up. Get comfortable being uncomfortable because that's how you will grow. 
that if when you stretch those stretch goals, that's going to that's going to do it for you. So to the students who are listening or to the adult learners who are afraid to come back, I got to tell you, my mom was 50 years old when she took her first community college course because she never even graduated high school. She had to do the GED thing and she took that first course at age 50. And I still I will remember it. It's etched in my brain. 60 years old. She finished all the grandchildren in upstate New York. We all went and applauded. We roasted a pig in the backyard. She was so happy. You can achieve your goals, but you got to figure out again what makes you happy. Why are you doing this? And, and come because you really want to make a difference. That, that byline of ours, that vision statement, we transform lives through learning. We're not kidding. We do. I love the videos when I talk to students live or, 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 or we put the videos out. So don't be afraid. You're going to be amongst people just like you who've never been there before. Remember that imposter syndrome. It's totally normal to say, I don't feel like I belong here. Oh, you are exactly the right person. That's exactly what you're supposed to feel when you're in a new situation. So come and we promise you we will work with you. And if I always say, if you can't find the right person to talk to, come find me. I will hand hold you, walk you to the right person uh, so that you can get the help you need. You mentioned a lot, Marge, about all those that have helped you along the way, who took you under their wing, that mentored you, that prepared you, that sacrificed for you, that went out of their way to make sure that you had the necessary development that you needed. Well, who would you like to remember? Who would you like to thank? And who would you like to make note of? Well, there, there's a couple, but um, parents, I mean, it sounds quiche, whatever, but you know, my parents, I mean, they, they came from, when I say came from nothing, came from nothing. Most of us, you know, of, of a certain generation, you know, the parents, uh, you know, had to learn English in my family. They, they, um, there was no college graduate, but the fact, and my dad, and when I think back now, my mother was such an awesome role model for being independent. My dad, if you think about it, Having a kid, you know, I'm, I'm was born in the '50s. A girl that he pushed. He never even said you're going to college. It was assumed you're going to college. So the first role model was assuming greatness for somebody, right? So my parents first. My even as back far of my grandparents, you know, they hung that flag and they said, "You gotta love this country. Look, look what it's doing for us." Those are the, those, those big moments. Grandparents that said, love this country, go out and you know, do something. Parents that said, you can do it. You know, uh, from management, I think about this woman who ran a clinic, Marge Kofsky, my very first role model of a woman who could actually have a family and, and have a career, amazing. You know? um, and, and then I think about this gentleman, Ray Yunutsi, who um, a president I became very dear friends with, who showed me you can be kind and compassionate and still run a college or be a good leader. And, and he was the one that had a soft spot and wanted us to help people with intellectual disabilities. And, and it showed me, wow, you know, and, and, and our hearing impaired population, they need us. He said, Marge, if we don't do it, who's gonna do this? 
So, so those are just some big shout outs. Um, and you know, and I know you know this, I have, a, I have a very soft spot in my heart for Mike Geister when I came, who introduced me to such wonderful people like you at, at the chamber and Springfield. So, so these people who have helped me grow along the way, they continue. And I hope I can be one of them in other people's minds. Very good. Thank you very much. I wish we had another hour and a half. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us today Dr. Margaret Hamilton. She is the CEO and president of Lane Community College. She is also a registered nurse. Our community is so fortunate and grateful that you're here. I know that there are many great things to come under your leadership, the shared leadership with your staff, the shared leadership with the board of uh, directors for the college itself, and with the community as a whole, your commitment, your covenant, your promises to them. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. And we look forward to watching the full promise and the full potential of LCC unfold as you help all of us in the community develop our full promise and our full potential. Thank you so much, Mark. It's just a pleasure to be here with you. And I wish you such wonderful success with this programming. And thank you for calling out women leaders. It's awesome to hear. Thank you. Well, thank you for participating and allowing me to help to share your story. And I hope that I you feel I did a good job with that today. You did. It was kind of fun to go back in time. <laughs> thank you. And we'll be in touch again and we'll do some follow up. Okay. Take care. Have a great day.